Welcome back to Jesus Speaks Farsi. I'm Dara Lynn, and we're excited to begin a new podcast series highlighting scriptures in Iran, exploring the many ways God's Word is transforming lives in the Iran region. On today's episode, Jen and I will be talking with David Yegnazar, Executive Director of Elon Ministries. We'll be hearing from David about how his family story has been intertwined with the church in Iran over the last several decades. He'll also be sharing about the incredible ways the translation of the scriptures into Farsi has impacted hundreds of thousands of Iranians. Such a goal, such a desire, such a, uh, a, a cause of rejoicing. And, you know, to see pictures of people receiving Bible and the joy to hear their, their thanks. It's as if you've given them, and because you have, but you've given them the most precious thing in the world and something they've been waiting for. We're glad you're here with us. Let's get started. Well, we're here today talking with David Yegnazar, who's the executive director of Elon Ministries. David, we're glad that you're with us. Thanks for making time to talk. It's a pleasure. I'm a little bit nervous <laughs> because the podcasts have been great. So, well, we appreciate that. Um, we've been looking forward to talking with you. Well, we just wanted to start off hearing a little bit, having our listeners really hear a little bit about you and about your um, growing up in Iran and just maybe a little bit about your family um, to begin with. I was born in Iran. My dad is Iranian. My mother's British, as you know, I think you've met them both. So I was born in 1974. You know, I've had the privilege of watching the story of Iran's church unfold in my lifetime. And, and, and as you've been telling on the podcast of the last few episodes, it really is an amazing story. Um, but my, my granddad came to Christ. My dad's dad came to Christ in Iran in the 1930s. Uh, in Tehran, and he he fell in love with the Lord. He there's no other way of describing it. Somebody had invited him to a church, and um, he was sat in the church, and he he wasn't he would have called himself an atheist, but he felt like God say to him, "Young man, follow me," and so he decided to follow Christ. He was engaged to my grandmother at the time, and uh, he was 25, she was 20, and he said to her, if you don't want to marry me, I understand, I've decided to follow Christ. If you don't want to marry me, that's fine, um, but I'm following Christ. And so she actually decided to follow Christ, and they they did. He had, he had been educated to learn English, he spoke English, he had an opportunity to, to work for, for BP, for British Petroleum in Iran. And then he also had the opportunity, he had another job offer, which was with the Bible Society. And uh, one was going to make him a lot of money, and the other was not. But he felt like God telling him to work for the Bible Society, and so he served with the Bible Society for 37 years in Iran. And um, he fell in love with the Word of God, and yeah, that was the start of the story. But he, he was definitely somebody who absolutely loved the Word of God. He, you know, he, he, he ran into his early 90s. He died at 99, but until he was about 91, 92, he ran. And whenever he would run, he'd have a little Bible in his hand. He would run with the Bible in his hand. If there was ever a family picture, he would go and get a Bible and just bring the Bible into the family picture. And so the Word of God was always central for him. Mm-hmm. How did that affect you growing up with a grandfather that the scripture was so precious. 
It's a good question, actually. I, I mean, we, we all knew that we all called him Papa. In fact, everybody in the church called him Papa. He became like a uh, spiritual father in the in the Iranian church. Um, but we all knew that, I mean, Papa loved the Bible. He'd always talk about the Bible. So um, whenever he'd come to our house, um, we knew he'd ask us about the Bible. So I remember as a kid, I, coming home one time from school and my mom said, Papa's coming for dinner. Um, so what I'd do, I'd run up to my room, get the Bible and read a passage from the Bible so that I could <laughs> I could answer him. And then at dinner he would say something like, so what have you got from the Lord? And I, you know, actually I was reading Ephesians chapter three today <laughs> and, uh, and try and impress him. But, um, but it, I mean, we, he was always, he was always very good hearted about it. He never condemned us, but he always, he just, he just loved the word of God. And so we somehow just caught that a little bit from him, that this is precious. This is so valuable. I mean, I would, he would stay with us at times. And, you know, if I ever went to the bathroom in the middle of the night, sometimes I'd see him praying and with his Bible, um, you know, three, four in the morning. And then sometimes you'd see him because we shared a room sometimes. So uh, he'd wake up in the middle of the night and he's actually fallen asleep with the Bible in his lap. So somehow that was, those images are are there in your mind and you think, this is, this is so precious. So. What was it like in Iran at that time while he was part of the Bible Society in terms of, was it safe to be a Christian then? Was it safe to have so, a Bible? Yeah, so when he came to Christ, there was freedom in Iran and religious freedom in Iran until 1979. Uh, you were allowed to be Christians. You were allowed to have churches. Um, and so the Bible Society was able to function. But very, very few people were coming to Christ. But they were very... You know, they were open, they were protected by the government. So, yeah, there was freedom, but very few people were actually coming to Christ at that time. My grandfather, what, what, what happened with my grandfather was in the 1950s, he uh, began a prayer meeting in his home. What happened? He really was seeking after the Lord. He, he actually fasted a full fast for 42 days and uh, was just was a man who just wanted to know God. And so he experienced God and um, he, in the, it was a December in the early fifties, he woke up the whole family at six. He prayed the whole night. He woke up the whole family at six in the morning. My dad is one of three, F six kids, three girls and three boys. He was 12 at the time. My grandmother was there as well. He woke them all up and said, if Jesus comes back today, are you ready? So I don't know, Darlin or, Jen, what you do if your, your dad woke you up at six in the morning and said, if Jesus comes back today, are you ready? But they actually all described the same thing, that the, the Spirit of God just came and met with them that day. And they all gave their lives. They just sort of made a commitment to the Lord. They prayed for a few hours. There was just like this holy moment for them. And from that time, there was a prayer meeting in their home. They met every day without fail for over four years. Every day, wow. Every single day, Christmas, Easter, holiday, not a single day was missed. With other people, inviting other people? And then they opened it up. So very soon, I mean, they start. it started them by saying, 
open up the house uh, for people to come and pray, to study the Word of God, and then from the house to go out and share the good news. So that's really, uh, yeah, th that was a key moment in their lives and, and really in, in part of the Iranian church history. Mm -hmm. So for your dad, well, he was just said he was 12 then. Yeah. How did that impact him? And what did he... What did he go on to do? He, yeah, well, obviously, I mean, he's 12. Um, he, 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 they fell in love with the Lord, um, and all of, the, all of the kids really have gone on to serve the Lord. All of them have served the Lord. Uh, but, you know, as he was 12, and every single night there was a prayer meeting in his home, and he wanted to play soccer, he wanted to play football, and he wanted to do, and he would do that, and then he'd come back. They'd have the prayer meeting, and you know, sometimes we'd go to 10, 11, 12 at night. He, he tells, my dad tells a story that sometimes he was, you know, it's getting late, they're praying, and uh, he says to his, his dad, you know, can I go to sleep? And his dad would say, just go put some water on your face, let's keep praying. <laughs> and so he'd go <laughs> and dad's a, a teenager at this point? He's a teenager at this point. Oh, wow, well, wanting so, to go to sleep. I can't get my yeah, kids to, yeah. to go to sleep. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they had... But they met the Lord, and that's where my dad decided, I think, to, to follow Christ and, and serve Him. There had been years and years of mission work in Iran um, till 1979. So even the first missionary went in 1812. Uh, recent history was Henry Martin went in 1812. He translated the first Bible into modern into Persian at that time. He saw maybe one person come to Christ. And then there was a missionary called Robert Bruce who went in the 1860s to Iran from Scotland, went to Iran. Um, and he was a Presbyterian missionary. And, and he wrote a letter back to his uh, supporters in, in Scotland. And he said something really interesting that shows that he understood his role. And he said, I'm not reaping the harvest. I scarcely claim to be uh, sowing the seed. I am hardly plowing the ground, but I am gathering out the stones. And so people like Robert Bruce went to Iran, the Anglicans went in the 1920s and uh, started hospitals and, and uh, uh, schools and they did mission work. But by 1979, as you said, there were very few people who'd come to Christ. And my grandfather in those meetings, there were some people who'd come to Christ, but very few. And um, so when the revolution took place, uh, people thought, you know, and the hardline regime came, um, people thought that the small church would wither away and die. All the missionaries were kicked out and um, it, it looked bleak. So why did it grow so quickly after that? I, I think, um, you know, the, the Islamic regime came with a lot of promises. Um, Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini had been preaching that Iran was at a crossroads and it's either the decadence of the West or the glory of Islam. That was his message for years. And then finally he came. And actually, if you read some of the things that he uh, talked about and some things that he wrote, it's almost like he was promising freedom, even for women. We've had a series on women on this podcast. The women, you know, was talking about freedoms for women and all these things. But then the opposite happened, you know, and so there was soon a clampdown. And even people who helped support get Khomeini into power, many of them were killed and they were 
you know, you can read the history of, of the brut brutality at the time. And, you know, as a result, um, Iran, you know, the dream uh, that they had really has turned into a nightmare for the country. Eight-year war with Iraq right off the bat from 80 to 88, a million people died. Almost every family in, in the country affected in one way or the other. A lot of questions, mothers receiving their um, sons back in body bags. and So questions begin to form in people's minds. If this is the glory of Islam, um, maybe that's not what we want. Uh, so people start looking for alternatives, uh, economic uh, breakdown, political corruption, and all these things that you know. And also Iran has a lot of social problems. People may not be aware that Iran has one of the highest rate of drug addiction in the world. And so again, many, many families, 4 million, 5 million people impacted by drugs and then their families. So, um, and this has happened uh, increasingly over these 40 years. But so, so families are deeply affected. Marriages are affected. Parents can't be parents and kids lose out. And so there's deep social problems. At the same time, there's been a very courageous church, as, as, as listeners have heard over the last uh, episodes, a very, very courageous church. Where when they meet Christ, uh, they want to share. So these two things combined together, disillusionment with their religion, the courage of the church means that people have been uh, willing to, uh, it means that the church has grown. Um, I think another thing that's interesting is that the more people have come to Christ, the more they realize it's possible, uh, you know, it's happening in society. So when I was growing up, if one person came to Christ, often they thought they're the only Iranian in the entire world and entire history has ever come to Christ. I think it's an, you know, it's an incredible thing that's happened. In fact, one of the uh, founders of Elam who helped my father start it, he said that when he was one of the very, very early ones in the 1960s who came to Christ, but it, when he even came to believe that Jesus is the way, he said, but how can I? I'm a Muslim. It's not possible. He, that, you know, so that was the mindset. Mm -hmm. It's not even possible to do it, even if you believe it. Mm -hmm. So that he struggled with that for a few, uh, for a period of time, thinking, okay, well, this is true, but it's kind of, I, I'm not allowed to, I'm not able to. And finally, obviously he did. So as the number of people have come to Christ, as they've been courageous to share, it's become the sort of the barrier has become there is always this big huge barrier um, that seemed not not a, people thought that it was not scalable, but it's now become a, a much smaller maybe a little fence <laughs> that they have to uh, in comparison. That's true. we're talking about scriptures in this episode what what role did the scriptures play um, after that revolution when I mean did they come confiscate Bibles or like Bibles were in homes right before the revolution were they taken away or so I, they didn't come and take them from homes but basically what happened was the revolution became increasingly harsh particularly against the church so there were some overground churches before the revolution, they were able to function for some time. And the Bible Society was able to function for some time. But then in, finally in 1990, uh, it was completely banned. It was closed. And there's been no Bible Society in Iran since 1990. What was the Bible Society 
doing? Was it kind of like the Gideons? Are you familiar yeah, with the Gideons? Yeah, I mean, well, the Bible society, most countries have a Bible society which is there to um, provide the scriptures. Sometimes where there isn't a translation, they'll translate. Um, so they print and they um, distribute the scriptures in one way through the church. Uh, they work across denominations to um, provide scriptures in different languages. But most countries have their own Bible society, which really is supposed to work uh, for the whole church. Uh, but that was closed in Iran, was banned. It was closed, so they banned the Bible essentially mm-hmm. in the country. How did that impact people? I feel like, and I mean, I feel like we've heard that actually made the demand for the Bible yeah. increase. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it definitely makes the demand for the Bible increase uh, when people are told that they cannot have something. There's an intrigue to it. Um, for the church, it made having the Bible and access to the Bible so such a goal, such a desire, such a, uh, a, a cause of rejoicing. And, you know, to see pictures of people receiving Bible and the joy to hear their their thanks is as if you've given them, and because you have, but you've given them the most precious thing in the world and something they've been waiting for. One of my favorite stories was uh, from a family um, that, uh, you know, that, that her father had been martyred, uh, but um, they, they didn't have, she wanted actually to share the gospel. They didn't have Bibles, so she actually wrote out copies by hand, copies of the Gospel of John, the whole cop, just by hand. She had one copy of the Bible, um, so she would write the whole new, uh, the whole Gospel of John by hand in a notebook and then start giving it to people. Um, what year was that? That about? was in the 1990s. You have to think that was pre-technology, so there wasn't yeah. an app yeah. for the Bible. Yeah. It, it, was, you, you have the book or you don't. Yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so I think it becomes so precious to people um, with tears receiving a copy of, of some, uh, some a word, the word of God that they believe is going to bring salvation, bring change, bring hope. One thing I wanted to ask you about, too, is about just the translation of the Bible into modern Persian. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about why that was important. I know, I think you mentioned that Henry Martin had translated it yeah. in the early 1800s. Yeah. So it's 200 years, I guess, that or not quite 200 years, but yeah. what was the, um, maybe the process or what was the, not so much the purpose, but maybe the cultural importance yeah. of having a... So of course, um, you want to have um, scriptures that people can read and understand. So the translation that Henry Martin did was really like reading the King James Version. It was very loved, but not easy for everybody to understand. And so it was felt by various church leaders to um, that there was a need for that. So um, my dad, who had been part of various translation in, in other languages, um, worked with across different groups and, and they came up with the project. And actually a man called Tatius Mikhailian in Iran, who was Iran's foremost translator at the time. Um, he was the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Iran. And my dad talked with him and he agreed to become the head of the translation. And that was in the, like in March or April 1994. And he agreed at the letters and they, they wrote, it wasn't emails then, it was letters. And he agreed to that 
But then in July, I believe it was, 1994, Mikhail Yan was martyred. He was shot in the head. And so right from the beginning, this project had a major setback. I was 20 when that happened. I was still in college. It was the first time that really I questioned it. And actually, so we'd served Muslims reaching, you know, the church was to reach Iranians and reach out to the Muslim community. And when I went to university in London, it was the first time where I was really faced with Muslims trying to convert me. And I went through a time where I was thinking, oh, what if we've been wrong the whole time? And so I was just like, oh my goodness, what's going on? Because uh, I wanted to wrestle with that. I really wanted to work it out. So I remember I went home one from university one time, went, went home to my dad and talked to him. And I thought he's going to be like angry that I'm even questioning that. And he was totally, he was doing his tie up as I was talking to him. He goes, oh yeah, that's fine. You're questioning that because of your integrity and you'll be okay. Just think it through and and um, you'll come to the truth. So he was just totally relaxed. And he said, of course, I've had to deal with that myself. So yeah. you, you do this because of the integrity of your own heart. You've got to go through that and you've got to work it out, whether it's whether you believe it. And he was he was totally calm. It was, you know, he just carried on. And his tie looked nice at the end and went on. <laughs> so it was it was really good. How long did that last for you, that that the questioning? I mean it was really strange because at the same time people in Iran were being killed for their faith. People I knew. One of my dad's close friends was killed at that time and it was really, really intense. It felt like a spiritual battle. Actually what happened was it went on for probably four or five months, uh, just really questioning. And one night I was really just praying and, and I, I don't know if I was struggling. Yeah, I probably was struggling and just sort of working, Lord, what's going on? Um, I didn't expect that in my life. Um, and then, so I met Roland at university. So Roland's a good friend. And um, so anyway, I... I came to it, it was like one twenty in the morning and I just said, Lord, I just need to know that somebody was praying for me. I don't know why I said that, but I actually said, Lord, I just need to know somebody was praying for me right now. And I finally fell asleep. I went into university the next day and I saw Roland and he said, how are you doing? He said, actually, uh, you know, and he said, he looked at me and he said, that's funny. He said about one twenty last night, I was pushed to pray for you. Yeah. So I thought, okay, and that was the turning point. That was like the Lord said, "Yeah, I know, I'm watching you, and yeah, you get through this." And so yeah, that's my. Was that your first year in school? No, that was. Um, yeah, that probably was my first year in school. Actually, yeah, towards the end of it. Yeah, and in England, are you 18 when you go to college? Is it similar to 18? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. It does feel like there's value in and searching outside of your religion so that you can come back to the truth. Yeah. I think that's it. I mean, what my dad said there is it's your, I mean, it was just without missing a beat. He just said, yeah, it's because you've got integrity to, to work out whether you really do believe this, not because of whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so you live, you've got to live out your faith out of a place of integrity in terms of your knowing that you, you really do believe this. For yourself and not for yourself, your yeah, not for During that time, did you ever read the Bible and read stories and were like, how could this be? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody, you, you've got to question that, but, um, well, I'm not question it. I think 
I think I've always approached the Bible from the point of view that I believe God and therefore if God is, then these things are possible and he can make these things possible. And actually, the more I've read the Bible, the more I see the humanity of the Bible, the more easy it is to believe it, you know, um, because it is so, it's so human as well as divine. It's the, the characters in the Bible and you can just relate to them so in so many different ways. So actually, when I, so I've, I've read it through the eyes of characters, not just the Jonah and the whale, but, you know, does this thing actually happen? Do these, do people behave that way? Yes, they do. And, and yet God is in the midst of that. And so I think, um, yeah, of course you, you, you work out your, your own perspective on creation and, and how did that actually happen? You know, how was it really just Adam and Eve and, you know, um, but yeah, that's, we'll leave that to others to, to work out all the details. So actually they, they carried on with the Bible translation and they called it the Mikhailian project. That's, and so that right throughout the whole process, the, the price that one of our dear brothers paid was, was there. Um, and on the day of the dedication of, of the whole Bible back in, it took 20 years to do it. It was wonderful that the, that his widow was the one who was presented with the first copy. How would you say that um, the church in Iran has been impacted or how has it changed as a direct result of that translation project or having that, that modern uh, version? Well, it, first of all, the, the translation took many years. So it's, the translation project started in 1994 and the, the New Testament was finished in 2003. So it was a lot of anticipation. Yeah, I mean, people, people obviously were, were hungry to get uh, hand, their hands on a copy, but there weren't many, many Christians at the time. So we, what I remember is thinking, okay, we're doing this translation project. And I wasn't part of Elam at the time. I joined Elam in 1998. Um, and then when I joined, you know, you could, the program, it's, it's, it's a long project. So you're thinking, okay, fine, when's this going to happen? Then finally it happens in 2003. And we printed 10,000 copies of the New Testament at that time. And uh, I remember thinking 10,000 copies, that's going to take 100 years to distribute. There's not that many Christians. Um, and but still, okay, we'll do it, and it's, it's an act of faith. Um, but when when people got hold of it, they loved it. They absolutely loved it. But what was I think how it has impacted the church is more that um, they felt they had a tool. They had not a tool. They had the word of God that they could now give to people. And so the greatest impact, or one of the greatest impact, has been that evangelistic because now Iranian Christians have something they feel they can give to their countrymen, they can give to others and share. And, um, so using the New Testament as a gift, uh, they have been giving the New Testament all over the country to people and saying, I've met Jesus Christ, he's changed my life. Mm -hmm. If you read this, you can meet him too. And that's really the simple evangelism that takes place in Iran where people just they, they fall in love with Jesus. They know him 
and they have his word that they can share so they they take it and they share it and so i think that's the greatest impact so how is this happening how is this happening that the scripture's getting to our folks in in iran i mean can they print can they print it there or no it's it's not possible to print it there so yeah i mean we we printed ten thousand copies um i thought it'd take a hundred years uh, within six months we had to print another twenty thousand and then fifty thousand and um you know now i think it's over a couple of million that have gone to print um and so that's happened because people have received it they share it and then people who come to christ this just becomes part of the culture when you know jesus you want to share his word you want to let other people know about it um and so um but then it's a hard job to actually get it into the country so you have to they have to be printed outside and um, they're taken in in different ways you know we, we mentioned or jennifer mentioned uh, how you can get the bible on an app now but i know that it's important for them to have it like a hard copy of it and for it to be a really beautiful copy the one and their hands that yeah i've seen they're nice and red and i guess like a leather type book but why would that be why is that important for Iranians or Persians. Yeah, so the copy, our, our, our Bible's on actually available on version and, and other apps. But because it's used for evangelism, you know, it's it's a completely different thing to um, to tell somebody, hey, go and look at this app or actually give them a beautiful copy of the, of the New Testament. And when they hold it in their hands, I mean, I've seen it time and time again. When they get it, they look at it. They value it as something so precious that looks good. Um, on the front, it says the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and um, they they cherish it. They honor it. Many people kiss it. And, and um, then they get, they've get they got something in their hand. That's, they're intrigued to read it. And it's become quite well known in Iran, actually, this little red New Testament. So often when people are given it now, um, people say, oh, I've been looking about uh, for this. I've heard about this. I want to get a copy of it. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, um, one of the Iranian officials, in fact, it's been on Iranian news at different times, but one time one senior official had a copy in his hand and he was showing it on TV, on national TV, saying this New Testament is being uh, given out all over the country do not read it um, and so he was uh, on 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 national tv showing the new testament telling people not to read it which of course meant that everybody wanted to get a hold of the copy so i understand you were part of the team who raised funds for that first printing and there's a little bit of a story about that around that with your dad. Yes, there is. So I was, um, <clears throat> well, we, right from the, we, we, we raised the money for the first 10,000 and um, then <clears throat> went on a few times. And then we were going to raise, we, we felt like okay, the next print run, this was probably around 2009, we were thinking we we're going to raise, we want to do a printing of 100,000 copies. So um, I was, I was going to, and it, it cost about $5 a, a New Testament. So we had to raise about $500,000 for that project. Um, and so I basically worked the whole year to uh, to raise $500,000. I mean, a lot of my work was just to, 
tell people, you know, and try and raise that that amount, uh, which is a big amount. And so finally, it was around December one or two, I we got the money. So I called my dad and I said, Dad, we've got the the funds have come in. We can print a hundred thousand. And I thought, you know, I was waiting for him on the other side of the phone to say, Well done, son. You know, some kind of congratulations or whatever. So I'm waiting and it's a bit silent. And then I said, so what do you think? He says, I think we should, I think we should print 200,000. <laughs> and I was just, I, literally, I was just really annoyed. I mean, this was, this was supposed to be a spiritual moment, but I was actually annoyed. I was like, I can't believe you're saying that, you know, I've worked a whole year for this. And I said, I said, dad, what are you, okay, okay whatever. And he said, let's pray. And I said, okay. And I put the phone down. I said, you pray. I'm just going to be annoyed. And, um, I need a minute. <laughs> yeah, I needed a minute uh, with myself and God and whatever. So, um, But he had this conviction that we should do 200,000. So anyway, fast forward two, three weeks, and I probably did begin to pray. Um, but it was December 23rd. I was heading out of town to visit my brother for Christmas and um, was on my way to the airport and somebody from our office called and said, David, uh, a check has arrived. Uh, you probably want to know about it. And so I uh, left a voicemail. So I called her up and I said, is it, what, what is it? She said, yeah, you want to know about this check? I said, okay, tell me about it. She said, yeah, you probably, you, you should know about this. And I said, okay, well, tell me, tell me. <laughs> exactly. And she was struggling to tell me. I said, what's, what's going on? She said, it's a check for, Five hundred thousand dollars. What? And I said, "What?" She said, "There's a check here for five hundred thousand dollars." I said, "Who from?" And she said a name. I'd never heard of this person. Never heard of this person. And I said, "What does it come with? Anything?" And it said, "The letter, dear sir, please use this for printing a hundred thousand Bible no. uh, New Testaments wow. for Iran." <laughs> And that was it. It was a personal check. It had come in a FedEx. It had come in a FedEx envelope. So anyway, I called my dad on it. the way to the airport. <laughs> and I said, Dad, I have no idea what kind of hotline you have to have. But 500000 I'd worked a whole year. And then somebody else just writes. So we had no idea who this was. So finally I emailed, there was no phone number to call. There was an email, I emailed. Oh, we're very, very good friends now, but um, so he, he jokes about the fact that he didn't get the email. But anyway, emailed him again, say, hey, I'm coming to town. I'd love to meet you, tell you what's happened with this story. So we met, I was expecting somebody to drive up in a Bentley or something like that with bodyguards, uh, came up in an old Honda. We met in a Panera Bread. And uh, so I told my story, and so he's in tears, saying, you don't understand how this fit in. And then I said, well, what happened? And he said, uh, he'd made an investment in land, had sold it that year unexpectedly. It was actually, so this was 2009, that was high of recession, sold it at an incredible deal. And then he prays every year at the beginning of the, at, at every December, the beginning of December, Lord, what do you want me to do with what you've given me? And so he said that first day, he, this money that he'd made from this land sale, the Lord said, that's, that's not for you. The, he prays for three days. The first day he prayed, he kept getting Iran. Iran, it had nothing to do with Iran. He'd never 
had Iranian friends, never thought about Iran, but Iran kept coming to his mind. So he goes to bed that night thinking, okay, this has got something to do with Iran. Next day, the verse, my word will not return void. My word will not return void. So he's thinking this has got to do with Iran and Bible. So he goes on Google, looks up, finds us, and he feels like the Lord say, send them $500,000 for New Testaments and don't ask any questions. Wow. <laughs> and so he, he writes this letter, writes the check, and he says, I put it into that FedEx. He said, my hands were trembling, but I knew I was doing what the Lord had told me, but I was terrified. Mm -hmm. So then he's, you know, that's the story that how the Lord provided um, extra New Testament. So what was cool was to tell the people who were receiving the New Testaments in the country to tell them that story, to say, God has paid for these Bibles. He wants this <laughs> for these New Testaments. He wants this project to happen. He gave them so much confidence, you know, people like Farshid. I remember talking to him about that. Farshid was on the first episode of this of this podcast, um, you know, and he related that to his network, saying, hey, guys, the Lord has provided for these New Testaments. Um, so he's in this with us, so. I love these stories where people sort of step aside and then God steps up and there's no way of denying you know, right. his involvement. So yeah. What an encouragement to the Arabians too, just to know that the Lord is, he sees them. He's, yeah. he's providing for them. I love that. Maybe along those lines, we're, we were hoping you had a few stories for us, maybe of, of people who receiving a Bible or um, how the Bible has impacted certain certain people's stories. Yeah, I mean, over the years, you hear, generally hear the stories of people who receive the New Testament. It's sort of almost, and you know many of the stories now, so many parts of the stories are, then I got the New Testament, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, then somebody shared the New Testament with me. Just I was in in one event recently where a lady was sharing her story of how. Um, so the two kinds of stories. One is it's part of the normal evangelism that finally comes to the Word of God and people read the Word of God and it changes them. So this story was a lady who uh, was a very fanatical woman who um, um, was really really religious and she was working in a hairdressing uh, hairdressers um, what do you call them here hairdressers hair salon and um, asylum? Hair, hair not asylum not <laughs> asylum hair <laughs> salon salon we do not say yeah, that here yeah. um, but anyway she finds out that one of her colleagues has become a Christian and they're involved in some kind of conversation and then it becomes a bit of a tense thing and she hits the other lady the Christian lady over the face uh, and causing bleeding on her on her face. And um, anyway, um, this is in a country near Iran, so it's not outside. They were refugees, um, but um, she was afraid that this lady is going to cause, you know, because she attacked her. But the next time she comes into the into the shop, um, she's thinking maybe she's going to press charges or. or Whatever. She went back to the shop? So the Christian lady came back to work oh, okay. and um, and said, I forgive you, and gave her a New Testament. And so she's amazed, obviously, the one who was 
who had hit was just amazed at this response. And so takes the New Testament, reads it, meets Christ in the pages of that New Testament and is now uh, somebody who's been through discipleship and has uh, been through some training and is witnessing and sharing with others. So that, you know, it's it's sometimes the New Testament comes in part of a story where, you know, there's been a witness, there's been an evangelism. Other times it's, um, you know, just a miracle really, or something you can see God's hand so clearly. So one of my favorite stories from this year is um, a lady who was discipling, uh, we have a friend who was discipling at, uh, somebody online actually. So this person was outside the country had received an inquiry from somebody inside Iran um, saying, uh, you know, I would like to know more about Jesus. And so leads her to Christ online and starts discipling her using Safar. I don't know if we talked about Safar on this, but yeah. but, <clears throat> but um, using this one-to-one discipleship tool called Safar. So they're doing these steps together. And um, then a few weeks into it, the lady's growing and uh, the person in Iran is growing. And finally she says to the lady discipling her, you probably want to know how I got a hold of this New Testament. She said, yeah, tell me. She said, I'm a handbag thief. I have, um, you know, I'm a single mother, three kids. My husband's abandoned us. And for the last year or two, that's what I've done to survive. I would steal handbags. I would steal seven, eight handbags a day and um, and find the cash and, and provide for my family. She said, uh, a few weeks ago, I stole a handbag. There was no money, but there was this New Testament with your phone number in it. And so I read the pages of the New Testament and something gripped my heart. And that's how I called you. And, and that's where I am. So you hear stories like that where a handbag thief finds a New Testament and not only finds a New Testament, then finds somebody to teach them what it says. Um, so yeah, you see, there's many, many stories like that. What do you think is next for the church in Iran? Where do you think it's headed? Do you think it's going to continue to grow? Or do you think it's going to, like, what, what are yeah, you seeing? That's a good question. I am very hopeful that the next generation of uh, of Christians, and this is what we're working towards. I'd love our your listener, our listeners to. I'd love the listeners, and this is something I'd love the listeners to pray for: is that the next generation uh, of Christians in Iran, young people, uh, would have the same fire, uh, same passion for the Word of God, same passion to know Him and to make him known as the older generation that I've talked about. Um, and we're beginning to see that happening, and that's what we're working towards at, at Elam. You know, that's one of the things that we've talked about, the next generations, and we want it to go you know, stronger and stronger. I think in terms of the potential of the church in Iran to grow, I think it's, it's definitely there. There's a great emphasis on discipleship. So it's not just evangelism. We talked a lot about evangelism. So the New Testament's for evangelism, the whole Bible really, uh, we finished the Bible in 2014 and making that available to believers to study, uh, to get uh, rooted in the whole scriptures and to become friends with the Old Testament as well as the New Testament uh, and uh, to see the whole story that God is writing and 
Um, so I, I believe that the church in Iran can grow. I also believe that um, the church in Iran, as it grows, can be a blessing to, to the global church. There's one reason we're doing this podcast, because we, we love these stories to be a blessing to, to Christians around the world, to encourage them in their own faith, their own walk. That's something that's been on our heart for a long time, that we want to, um, yeah, we, wanna, we want the story of Iran's church to be a blessing uh, beyond the 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 country of Iran. In fact, the mission of Elam is to, the love of Christ for Iran and beyond. And from the beginning, the, the faith was that Iran, uh, we want Iran to be a blessing. We want Iran to play its part in the, in the Great Commission. Iran to, um, the gospel to go to other uh, nations from Iran. So. so David, in light of what we know about Iran and how it is difficult to um, distribute scriptures. It's difficult uh, to share the gospel in many ways, and it's obviously banned there. And, and as we've talked about, um, there are many around um, the world, and certainly in the Western cultures, that would say, uh, would ask, why, why would you know, why should we convert people to Christianity? Let them let them stay however they are. What would you say to all of that? What's what is why do you keep doing the thing that you're doing? Why do you keep working with so, it? Um, it's a great question, actually. And I think, um, why try and convert people to Christianity? I don't think it's my job to try and convert people to Christianity. I want to introduce them to Jesus. And um, it's the job, it's the, the spirit that convicts and, and brings people to himself. Um, but our job, we want to, we want to let people know about Jesus. Uh, I remember my dad saying actually years ago, and one of the things that it was his conviction was um, people have the right to hear, they have the right to reject, but they do have the right to hear. And in a country like Iran, they've been that right to hear the gospel has been taken away from them. Um, and we want to give them the right to hear. We, we believe they have the right to hear about Jesus. We obviously love Jesus. We believe his word is true. We want to give them the right to hear. Uh, we want to, to let them hear. They have the right to hear, but they have the right to reject. If they want to reject, that's their, they, that's their choice. Um, and so we're not, think, we're not strategizing how to convert people. We're not strategizing how to do anything, control people's lives or anything like that. We just want people to know about Jesus. We have met Christ. Uh, and people in Iran, uh, some of the people you've had on the, on, on the podcast and many, many others like them have met him and they have the right to share what they've, they've, who they've met, you know, and we, we all can um, see that there has been a change in their lives and, and why not share good news? Um, so I think if people, even those who say, why are you converting people, um, understand that, no, actually, we feel we have good news. We're sharing good news with people. Uh, I don't think anybody can stop people sharing what they believe is good news. So I, you know, uh, the story of Iran's church is a beautiful story, and it's part, but it's focused around Jesus. Mm -hmm. Jesus has changed people's lives. Jesus is um, the one who's brought new hope, has brought salvation, and they want to share it. And I think that's a beautiful thing when people share what they believe is good. And is helpful and is and is um, um, is true with other people. So that's what why I think we do what we do. 
David, I know you said that you spent summers going back to Iran as a child and, and there wasn't, Christianity wasn't very um, common. Did you ever think that you would see this day and the growth that we see now in the, in the country at that moment? Yeah, um, probably not actually, um, because I was a child and uh, I could do some maths. I've never been brilliant at mathematics, but um, I remember being in the church in Iran, and you know, there's a there's a few hundred people in the whole church in Iran at the in the eighties, and it was a population was about sixty million people, and so the maths didn't make sense that this would be a significant thing in Iran. Um, I remember in particular one summer, I think it was, uh, it was summer of 1985, we'd gone to Tehran and we were walking from my grandfather's house to the church um, or traveling through the city and um, it's a busy bustling city and um, the signs of the Islamic revolution are everywhere. You see big pictures of Ayatollah Khomeini all over the place. You see signs saying death to America, death to Israel. Um, all the women are forced to wear the head covering. My sister was only a couple of years older than me. I was 11 at the time, she was 13. She's forced to wear the head covering. I mean, there's no choice in the matter. The government is strong, Islam looks very strong. And we walk into this little church and um, I just have this memory of Christians praying for Iran. So you've come in off the streets of, off of this scene into a little place, a handful of, a handful of human beings, you know, men and women who are praying to God. You know, that's what the image of an 11 year old saying, come and touch this nation, bring salvation, bring your hope to this nation and, and bring that Jesus be known and all of this. I'm watching my grandfather with his arms raised up and eyes and his tears running down the side of his face, praying with all his heart for Iran. And my thought was very simple. Can God answer their prayer? Is it actually even possible? You know, and a lot of times we're in meetings where we, we hear prayers, big prayers, and we kind of say amen, but we all have that thought, yeah, that, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. Um, but they prayed and they, they, they genuinely, I mean, I have this, it was such a deep conviction. They believed God could do it. Um, and they really cried out to God to do it. And I think one of the things that was interesting about those prayers is they weren't doing it because they were looking for a sign from God. They weren't saying, God, do this to show that you're real. They're saying, God, you're real. We trust you. Come and work. So many times our prayers are, Lord, please do this, because if you do that, we'll really believe you. And actually in John chapter 4, after the, at the end of John chapter 4, there's the story of the man who comes to Jesus to ask him for his son to be healed. And Jesus says, to the people who are listening, you only, you're only looking for a sign. And so the second time the man asked, Lord, but come and heal my son. His conviction was, Lord, you can do it. I'm not looking for a sign. I just want you to come and do this because I know you can. And I think that was the kind of prayer that was going on there. It wasn't like, all right, we're, we're waiting in judgment over you, God, to see if you can do this. It was like, Lord, you're real. Come and do this. Please come. Please come. Come and visit us. 
and they would pray with all their hearts and and uh, and like this podcast and others have, have shared it really has happened um, and we're seeing it I mean literally every single day uh, we hear stories of this happening um, and you know some of them you've heard some of them some have been told and more will be told but it is really remarkable so God I've learned that God can answer prayer and his word is true can you give us kind of an estimate of how many Christians we think are in the country right now? I can give you a very general estimate um, from, from what other research has gone on. Um, so in 1979, we can say that there were probably about 500 Christians from a Muslim background. Today, uh, research says that anywhere from six to 700,000, many would say more than a million, uh, have come to Christ. Um, and it depends kind of how you would describe a Christian. Uh, many of them wouldn't necessarily know an evangelical statement of faith, but they put their trust in Christ. They've seen a TV program. They've received a New Testament. They've heard from a friend. Um, but there's there's a huge amount of work to do still. And so please, when, whoever's listening wants to pray, pray for the nation of Iran with the same kind of prayer and faith. Lord, just come and continue to do your work. Well, uh, just in remembering your um, grandfather's um, request of you as a child, always asking you what you were reading in the scriptures, what would you say that you're reading, or what have you been reading lately, David? That's a good question. So I'm getting getting that feeling of a nine-year-old again. Um, I have I have really been enjoying studying the Gospel of John and the letters of John, John one, two, and three. Um, but yeah, the, the theme that I'm just focusing on praying through is um, Jesus who came full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. I'm pondering on that. What does it mean for us to be full of grace, for him, for Jesus to be full of grace, full of truth? What does that need to look like in our lives? So he's abounding in love, abounding in faithfulness. And what does that need to look like in my life, in, in the life of a Christian? And just then seeing, following that theme throughout the whole of the Gospel of John um, and, and the grace of Christ, grace upon grace. I think a country like Iran needs grace upon grace. I'm here in the USA recording this. Uh, this country needs grace upon grace. It really does. Uh, and we need truth. We need the truth. But not just truth. Uh, it's I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with this idea. What does it mean? Jesus is the truth, but uh, he's abounding in faithfulness. Uh, what does that mean for us uh, as the church in Iran um, to be a church full of grace, full of faithfulness? And, and maybe that's something for us to ponder this part of the world as well. David, we're wrapping up now. We sure have enjoyed talking with you. Um, we always like to ask our guests, is there something in particular we can pray for you? Or, Well, uh, it's been fun to be with you. I would love you to. I mean, I've just this theme. I'd love to understand more of the grace and the truth um, and for that to be real in my own life and then hopefully more and more in, in the church in Iran. Um, I'm praying that the church in Iran will be a church full of grace, full of truth. So 
I want that obviously for my own life and for the church in Iran. Well, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here. We hope you were encouraged by our conversation with David Yegnazar about the impact of the scriptures in Iran. In our next episode in the series, Joe will be speaking with Ruz Bey, a talented songwriter and worship leader, about his personal story of meeting Jesus and how the scriptures were integral in his life transformation. We look forward to seeing you next time. Jesus Speaks Farsi is produced by Elam Ministries, a nonprofit charity whose mission is to strengthen and expand the church in the Iran region and beyond. For more information and ways to partner, visit elam.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. We would love for more people to learn about what Jesus is doing amongst Persian speakers today. <laughs>